Tonight's reading from the New Testament is from John chapter 20, verses 1 through 10. It can be found on page 4 in your bulletin. Now, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early, while it was still dark, and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there, and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture, that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. This is the word of the Lord. Would you join me as we pray? God, you boast that your word can bring new life, that you can make dry bones live. And many of us know this to be true. And we pray that you would make it, make it so in our entire community this evening. Make us alive to you. We thank you in advance for your great love, your intention toward us. In Christ's name, amen. Well, this past week, my wife Meg and I watched the film Unbroken. Maybe some of you, has anybody seen that film here? A handful of you, maybe. Um, And it tells the story of Olympic athlete, Louis Zamperini, who was a soldier in World War II. His plane gets shot down. He spends 47 days in a life raft. Amazing. And then two years as a prisoner of war, where he is brutally tortured by a notorious prison guard. And the film, as you would imagine, is a very moving portrayal of perseverance and survival. Now, at the end of the film, they do one of those little postscripts that they'll often have with the true story. And they go on to tell just briefly about the journey that occurred when he went back home, his journey through post-traumatic stress, through alcoholism, and through forgiveness, actually leading him to return to Japan and meet many of his guards forgiving them, extending forgiveness. And Meg had read the book and she began to fill in some of the blanks. I thought, man, I wish I could have seen that part of the story unfold 
before my eyes because in many ways that was the greater battle that he won. It was the emotional battle that he accomplished. And in fact, we can't even endure the physical stuff unless the emotional strength is there. Well, in our passage this evening, the disciples, the followers of Jesus, are on the heels of, no doubt, the most emotional week of their lives. They have watched Jesus, the one they have followed and committed to, to being arrested, to being brutally tortured, to being executed on a cross, and then wondering where his body went. And the passage runs high with emotion, literally as they're running back and forth. Mary runs to the tomb. The disciples run back and forth to the tomb. And then in the passages that follow right after that I'll refer to, where you have Mary weeping, where you have the disciples overcome with fear. And yet, one event transforms all that emotion. All that trauma is undone by one event. And it's the resurrection of Jesus. That's how they have their emotional transformation. And I wonder if we could believe the same might happen this evening. That the living God could do the same thing in our lives with the emotions that we're dealing with. Whether they be the highs and lows of day-to-day life. Or maybe you find yourself stuck in a place. Maybe you're drained. Maybe you feel emotionally dead. What I want to consider this evening is an emotional resurrection. What does that look like Look like in our lives? As we struggle and manage, as we battle and have victory over something that is so core in us, right? If we don't experience liberation here, we won't really experience it anywhere else. And so that's where I want to turn your attention for the minutes that we have together this evening. And we'll begin with the idea of battling with our emotions. Now, for thousands of years, we have sought to understand emotions. It might be just the number of them. Aristotle theorized that there were 14 irreducible emotions. I won't list them all. There's some surprising ones on the list, actually. Psychologist Paul Ekman, who was well-known, famous psychologist, he actually used a study of the facial muscles to determine how many emotions we might have. I think he came up with six. Now, recent, um, recent study and survey has come to the conclusion that we have four emotions. You ready for these? Happiness, sadness, fear, and anger. And it sort of gets into another side of understanding our emotions. Um, one way to look at this was what might be called the wheel of emotions. Just like there are, is there a light show going on here? <laughs> I feel like there is. Um, anyway, you know, this wasn't part of the Easter sort of celebration where you thought, hey, this will be a good idea on Easter. We'll, we'll flash the screen. But there we go. I think we're getting it fixed. But how emotions actually interact with one another, just like you might have a color wheel, 
and you've got primary colors and secondary colors. Well, the thought would be that we've got primary emotions and secondary emotions, and they sort of work together. So, for instance, anticipation plus joy equals optimism. Or they believe that if we can just get inside the brain, we'll understand the effect of emotions. A business insider did an article last year on why young girls would faint and cry during Beatlemania. If you've ever seen those films, right, where these young women are just falling apart. And this is their thought. You know, there's two branches of uh, the autonomic nervous system. You've got the sympathetic side, which is, you know, that mobilizes us during stress, the fight or flight. And then you have the parasympathetic side. And that's actually the, sort of the calm and the release. And so when we finally let the emotions go, the tears will flow and even our blood pressure can drop. Now, with all this research, I think we can at least assume this. One, we're emotional people. <laughs> at the very least, we are emotional people. God has made us that way. But second of all, we often get overwhelmed with our emotions. It can be too much. There's a theologian named B.B. Warfield, and he wrote an interesting article on Jesus Christ. He called it The Emotional Life of Our Lord. And I think it was significant, one, because he affirms that Jesus Christ as the God-man had an emotional life. But he says there were two errors historically that we've fallen into. One is, I'll say, the Spock Jesus. That is, under thinking Jesus had no emotions. This came from the Stoics, where they believed perfection was absence of emotion. But the other would be Jesus the slave to his emotions. That he, he experiences the full range like you and I, but he doesn't really have control over it. But what's more accurate when you read the Gospels is to see that Jesus experienced all sinless emotions. So he had the ability to relish in all the good stuff, but avoid the bad and the sad, and even maybe going over the top with the good. I was reminded of it this this past week. I went to go hear some jazz on U Street. It's actually something that one of our uh, fellow members at the Meridian Hills Church has gotten going, just this desire to see jazz come back to U Street. And we went to see this band, and um, they were amazing. I mean, amazing. I'm not just talking like, you know, a little bit, but like, I mean, to the top, amazing. And you can sense my excitement. I was there with uh, my nephew and Pastor Russ, and if you know Pastor Russ, you know, he just fuels your emotions. So both of us are like, man, you know, we're just, just looking at each other. This is amazing. And so afterward, you know, I, we were about ready to leave, and I went up to one of the instrumentalists, and I was just, you know, just over, I was, uh, you know, and he just said, hi, I'm Victor. What's your name? <laughs> and it was sort of like, we're just humans here, Glenn, okay? Just interacting here as people. Calm down. You know, what happened? I just got, you know, even just overcome with the good side. We have difficulty managing our emotions. So did Jesus' disciples. I mean, you see it in Mary. Now, Mary was one of the faithful women that was at the cross of Jesus when he was crucified. She is one of two women that witnessed his resurrection. And we find her here in this passage. She's making her way to complete the burial preparation Jesus' body. Now, we're told a chapter earlier that Joseph and Nicodemus, who appears in chapter 3, they were both rulers and religious leaders that have become of Israel 
that had become followers of Jesus. And after the crucifixion, they go to the Romans and they say, we'd like the body. And the Romans give them the body. They put a linen around it, some burial spices. But the Sabbath is coming, so they're not able to finish that process. And Mary and some women were actually with them when they went to the tomb so they'd know it, where it would be so they could finish the process after the Sabbath. So that's where she is. She wants to be the first light, maybe so when they roll the, roll the stone away, she can get right to it. But you can only imagine the emotional and physical exhaustion she must feel. I mean, she was there seeing every bit of the horrific, horrific events. I mean, Jesus nailed and heaped up on that cross and naked and suffocating and being mocked. And she just loved him so. He had delivered her from demonic oppression. So she's witnessed that. She has spent hours with his lifeless body. And then she can't see the body. And when she goes to tell some of the disciples, at least, they say, you're crazy. You're delirious. So you can imagine how emotional she is. And when she goes to Peter and John, we read in verse 2, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. She assumes the worst has happened. Her emotions get the best of her. And in the section that follows that we couldn't read, four different times it mentions that Mary was weeping. She's weeping by herself. She's continuing to weep. When an angel appears, he says, why are you weeping? Then Jesus appears, and she doesn't recognize him, most likely because she's just overcome with grief. In fact, Mary was weeping so much she got a song named after her, Mary, Don't You Weep. So she's really overcome. She's a picture of us stuck in our sorrow in a pit of grief. And maybe you know what that's like because of a particular circumstance that you've endured. Or maybe it's just underneath the surface and you don't know why. But you just feel stuck in that place and you can't get by it. And then you have the disciples. After Mary sees that the stone is rolled away, she runs and uh, we're unsure if she went to Peter and John where they were staying in some home in Jerusalem or she went to where all the disciples are together. But by the nighttime, all those disciples are together and we know one thing about them. They are locked behind a door in utter fear. We're told on the first evening of that day, the disciples are all together with doors locked out of fear. They were afraid that the religious leaders that had put Jesus to death were coming after them. And this is consistent with the emotion they felt throughout. When Jesus was arrested, we're, we're told that they fled in fear. One guy fled naked in fear. I mean, you've got to be afraid to run away naked, right? He's afraid. Peter, the great one that professed love, denies Jesus three times out of fear. There they are. Their entire world has unraveled. Everything they believed and hoped in has fallen apart. Can you imagine that sort of fear? I I'm guessing you don't have to go far. Because maybe you've experienced your world unraveling. Maybe it's your job world. Maybe it's your school world. Maybe it's your relationship world. Maybe it's your inner psychological world. But to be gripped in anxiety and fear... One of the things I love about the Bible is whatever emotional state you're in, you'll find some company. The Psalms are all full of that. You can find somewhere that will relate to where you are. But it's not until they disciple Jesus and encounter the resurrected Jesus that that changes. Mary's joy, rather Mary's grief, turns to joy. 
and the disciples' fear is transformed into boldness. Peter goes out and preaches in broad daylight in front of 3,000 people. And we read in the book of Acts that when the religious leaders saw the courage of Peter and John, who we've just read about in this passage, they were astonished at their courage. And they took note that they had been with Jesus. The presence of Jesus had made them bold. Now, I know at this moment you might be thinking, must be nice. You know, uh, okay, if, if I had a friend who happened to have the ability to defeat death, I probably wouldn't be as emotional. Or maybe I'd have happy emotions. That would really help me. If the Son of God appeared to me, I bet that would help my anxiety a whole lot. What I want you to notice about the passage is Jesus says that that's actually not the ultimate reason why they had the transformation. If it were, all of us could just pack up and go home. He says that's not the reason. That moves me to my second point. Not just battling with our emotions, but gaining victory over our emotions through the word of the resurrection and the meaning of it. When Jesus appears to these disciples locked behind the room and he comes into that midst, it said that some worshipped him and some doubted. Thomas was the most outspoken of the, the doubters. He was the resident materialist. He said, listen, I've seen enough crazy stuff here. Unless I can touch the wounds... And touch your side, I'm not going to believe it's you. And Jesus so humbly lets him do that. And then Thomas falls to his feet and worships him. But then Jesus says this, listen to this. Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen, yet believe. Now that's extraordinary on a couple levels. One, Jesus is saying you could have known the truth without seeing me. Now, that cuts against our modern spirit big time because our idea, right, is I've got to see something, touch it, and measure it to know that it's true. And Jesus is saying something else, that you can know something's true without seeing it. Second of all, he says that those that learn God this way, taking him at his word, that they are rewarded with greater honor and blessing. That's potentially us, right? And thirdly, included in this blessing is emotional deliverance and transformation. It's what's implied by both the angel and Jesus when they talk to Mary. When they say to Mary, 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 why are you weeping? In a sense, they're going, don't you remember the word that I spoke about myself, resurrection. But then the angel says it explicitly. Listen to this. Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. And, uh, and has risen. Remember how he told you that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. So the question is, why the sorrow? Why the fear? Why the anxiety? Don't you remember? He told you. He gave you his word. Now, in many ways, let me, let me just say this. Even if God came and appeared to you in the flesh, in your emotional state, do you realize it would only get you so far? That apart from trusting the words of God, you can only get so far in managing and having victory over your emotions. 
That's what Jesus is saying here. It's, no, it's not unlike most of our relationships or our relationships, right? Imagine being in a relationship where the other person only trusts you after the fact. I mean, that relationship can only go, they don't, they don't ever take you at your word. You can only get so far. In every relationship, there's a moment where the person's going to look at you and go, I need you to trust me. I need you to take me at my word. And it's only at that point that it goes forward emotionally, that it actually matures that relationship. It's the same with God. It's not until we relate to God that way by his word that we actually begin to grow emotionally with him. And we mature in our relationship. Many times I think we push against it. We think, well, if I could just see him or he would do this and then he would do it again and then he would answer that prayer and then he would answer that prayer and then he would show up that way and show up that way and show up that way, then my emotions would be in a better place. Not so. It's only when he says to you, trust my word, and you do. Especially the word of the resurrection which takes us from the word to the meaning. Now, Paul and John, uh, rather, uh, Peter and John, take off. They get the word from Mary. They take off toward the tombs, and we're told that John gets there first. John refers to himself as the other disciple or the disciple that Jesus loved, not because he didn't love the other disciples. He just had a real sense that Jesus loved him. And they get there, and John stoops in, and he looks in and sees that the linen clothes have been set aside. And this is consistent with what we know about tombs in that day that were especially of the wealthy and were newly carved out tombs. In those sort of tombs, what would happen is you could look back, and there would be a bench there. And there there would be a pit where they would excavate so the workmen could actually stand up and finish the work of the tomb. So the bench was temporary, and that's where they would put the body. And then they would add different chambers, and about a year later, when the body had decomposed a bit, sorry, but then they would actually do a little bit more of the burial work. And so the idea that John comes up and he's able to look and see cloths there is consistent with what we know. And then we're told that when he arrives, though, he doesn't go all the way in. Peter's a little bit older. He gets there a little bit later. And John shows him deference. And Peter, in his personality, just lumbers right in, goes down into the tomb. And then John follows afterward. And this is what we're told. Then the other disciple, John's talking about himself, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and he believed. For as yet they did not understand the Scripture that he must rise from the dead. So John, the coins drop for him when he goes in. Peter, it takes a little bit more time and the other disciples. But what had changed? What changed for them? They moved from the mere fact of the resurrection to the meaning of the resurrection. Do you know that you could embrace today the fact of the resurrection? I know for some of you that would be a real leap. But if you can embrace the fact of the resurrection, it really won't help you to manage your emotions. Because what changed for them is they understood that he had to rise. That was the turning point. That was the change that they saw, that he had to rise. And that's what changed what their experience was. The Apostle Paul talks about this in the book of Corinthians when he talks about the resurrection. Let me read to you the words. And I had a portion of them on your first page in the bulletin. He says, but if there is no resurrection of the dead, if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. And your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. 
then those also who have fallen asleep, that means died, in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Did you hear what he said there? If the resurrection didn't happen, you and I are stuck in our guilt and our shame. You and I are stuck in a place where we have no hope for the future. You and I are stuck in a place where we really only have regret and we've wasted our lives. That's what he's saying. But if the resurrection did occur, the reverse should be true. It should begin to do major work on all those different things. And briefly to close us out, I just want to mention a few. As best I can, I want to take the fact of the resurrection and try to drive it into the meaning of our emotions and what we experience. First of all, the resurrection's impact on our guilt and our shame. Now, all of us have moral failure. There are things we should have done that we haven't done and things we shouldn't have done that we did. It may be gossip about someone. It may be use someone for your own purposes. It may be you ignore people that don't seem interesting to you. It may be that you don't like to show mercy when you have an opportunity to show mercy. But all of us every day experience this. It's not just an occasional thing, what the Bible would call sin. It's a regular thing. And if you can't own that about yourself, there's not much help for you. If you can't come to the place where you can say, yes, I have moral failings, there's not much help for you. Thankfully, God doesn't keep us there. And there are different ways that we deal with those emotions of guilt and shame, right? Some of us just try to press it out of our minds when it comes in. Others of us try to drink it away. Others, others of us try to work it off. We devote ourselves to a good cause. It makes us feel better. And maybe some of us just hope God will overlook it. Now, I'll tell you, God is infinitely gracious but not at the expense of his integrity. I mean, we, we don't do God like we don't like to be done, okay? We don't like people to just say, hey, uh, just overlook that. We want them to come to us face to face. And so what we find is instead God's, God's, God does something far better. He sends his one and only son, and he offers him, he lives the life that you and I should have lived and didn't live. He dies the death that we should have died. He bears the judgment and the wrath for us. That's what the cross is all about. But here's my question to you. How do you know it worked? It's a wonderful promise, wonderful gospel. How do you know it worked if Jesus didn't rise from the dead? I mean, if he didn't rise from the dead, we would be sitting there going, gee, I mean, did he accomplish his mission? If he didn't rise from the dead, we might join the critics and go, well, maybe he really should have died as a blasphemer. Maybe he really wasn't sinless. He was a sinner. Do you see, Jesus had to die. It was, he had to die, but he had to rise. It was necessary for Jesus to rise because it was vindication that, number one, he didn't die for his own sins. Number two, that he actually gave his life for our sins, that he accomplished the victory, and that God has accepted it. It's the receipt for the payment. The resurrection is the vindication that God has accepted that for you and I. And so we can feel sure that guilt has been taken away. The New Testament puts it this way. God made us alive together with Christ, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us. Or as the book of Romans would say, Christ was delivered up for our transgressions and raised for our justification. He was raised for our justification that you and I might be justified and right and blameless before God. 
the way that God wanted you to know today that you can be free from guilt and shame isn't from you trying to convince yourself or the culture trying to convince you or me trying to convince you because you know something? It'll never work. I would spare you from that exercise and exhaustion and futility. You will never be free. You will never be able to be an honest person and a free person. You need a word above you. You need a word that comes from the judge that says no condemnation for those who are in Christ. When that happens, your emotion of guilt and shame goes away because the risen Christ has said it's gone. That's guilt and shame. Let me hit just a few more briefer. What's the impact of the resurrection on anger? We've got two kinds of anger in our lives. We've got unrighteous anger and righteous anger. Unrighteous anger, the times that I shouldn't have got mad at people. Maybe it's my bitterness and my rage and my vengeance. Righteous anger is, yeah, should we be righteously angry when 147 people are massacred in Kenya? Yeah, we should be. Should we be righteously angry that the housing prices are so high in our city that people that are poor and middle class can't afford to live here? Yeah, we should be. There's things to be righteously angry about. But the resurrection of Jesus enters here and helps us because the resurrection of Jesus also ensures the return of Jesus. In the book of Acts, when Jesus is ascending up into heaven, the angels say to the apostles, why are you looking up in heaven? Listen, that Jesus that just went away that way, he's going to come back in the same way. He's going to return. And we're told when Jesus returns, he will come as a judge. And that means two things. One, I can let go of my unrighteous anger because, well, I can let go of even my righteous anger because God won't let injustice slip by. God will bring injustice and he will reckon it. That means I don't have to take vengeance myself. You may have been a victim of trauma. You, you may have been someone that has been sinned against greatly. And your best shot of not taking vengeance is to believe that God won't let that just slip by. But second of all, we understand what did he do with his righteous anger? God could have righteously brought his judgment on my life. I mean, it would have been fair. He would have been a good judge to do that. But what did he do? He brought it down on himself. He emptied that upon himself. How can I then be the unmerciful servant? You remember that parable? The guy's got a huge debt before the king. The king forgives him, and then he goes and throttles someone for a few nickels. I realize how often I do this in my life. I just want to, you know, I just want exact payment on someone. And the Lord is just looking at me going, what? And so the resurrection changes the impact on anger. It changes the impact of our fear. Most all fear is ultimately about loss. I'm going to lose this person I love. I'm going to lose this dream that I have. I'm going to lose the security of my money or the security of my home or the security of my health insurance. I'm going to lose my status and image. And the resurrection is the sure victory against the ultimate loss. Because what is the ultimate loss? The ultimate loss is death. You can't lose more than that. And all the little losses are really connected to that loss. But here you have Jesus Christ, the resurrected king, defeating death. And for those that believe in him, they no longer have to fear that great, great loss. The big loss has been taken away. And so the little losses don't dog us as much. 
the worries and the anxieties. I love this one detail that John includes when he says that he looked in and the grave clothes were all there except for one. The cloth over Jesus' head was over to the right and it was neatly folded. I mean, this is like the picture in the movie, right, where the hero just beats up all the bad guys and then he just brushes the dust off his coat. I mean, I, I just love it. It's like Jesus rises from the dead and he just calmly walks over and he takes his face cloth and he goes, that'll be the end of you, death. You and I have the same confidence before death and loss. You can take your little fears and you can fold them up and you can put them right over there and say, I'm done with that. I'm done with that anxiety because of what he has done. And it's those fears, that confidence of that resurrection that brings us into restoration. You know, the, the hope that we have that everything, all the bad stuff will go away. That he is determined not just to make my life okay now. God is determined to renew the earth that he had made. Amen? I mean, he is determined to renew the universe that he's made. God has a really big appetite. He has a big appetite in that he wants a bride from every tribe, tongue, and nation. He will not stop until he has that bride. And he will not stop until the entire cosmos is renewed. That means that you and I, in this resurrected state, take on the Genesis 1 and 2 project again, and it goes like it was supposed to. And we flourish and develop. And you see how important this is for people in this life that don't get the opportunities that maybe some of you, some of us have had. I mean, it's wonderful, right, when you get to use your gifts and your talents, but not if you're an Israelite in Egypt for 400 years. Guess what everybody's going to do for a living? You make bricks. What do you do when you're that person that didn't have the opportunities? Maybe you didn't have the education. Maybe you didn't have the money. Maybe you've been trafficked and you spend all your life working that way. It's only the resurrection of Jesus that gives anybody their hope. I just I can't wait to get on the new heavens and earth and watch the person that was lame run so fast and dance. I can't wait to see the person that had these beautiful skills, but they spent all their time in some mind under some oppressed person just flourishing with their gifts and talents. This is what that resurrection does, and it ultimately impacts our hope is what I'm saying. Kevin quoted... Uh, as he prayed, Ephesians, and it's an extraordinary verse. I'm so glad he took it and prayed it because it's this idea that the immeasurable might toward us who believe, to those who would believe, the very power of Jesus' resurrection as at your disposal with your emotions. And so I close by asking you, have you, an ex- have you experienced an emotional resurrection? Would you experience one tonight? Let's pray. Thank you, God, for what you do in us from the inside out. Would you please use your power to help us take your word and make it real in who we are and what we feel and what we do. In Christ's name, amen.